Good morning. It's good to see all of you here today, and aren't you glad that we can sing about being the sons and daughters of God and know that He'll never forsake us no matter what we go through, no matter what the situations that we face, that He will always be there and will always protect us and guide us and be with us and provide us His presence. If you've got your Bibles this morning, I certainly hope that you do. If you would, take them out and turn with me once again to the Gospel of Mark. Mark's Gospel, and today we're going to find ourselves in chapter 9. Looking at the first 13 verses, Mark chapter 9, beginning with verse 1 and working our way through verse 13. I believe if you've ever needed encouragement to continue pursuing the Christian life and living the life that the Lord desires for you to live, if you've ever found yourself in need of encouragement during whatever you might be facing, struggles going on your way, I believe that the passage that we're going to look at this morning is intended to be one of those passages that would help us and would encourage us as we walk the path that God has laid out before us. Uh, we're going to look at the transfiguration of Jesus this morning, and, and, and we find this covered for us in three different Gospels, not, not just Mark, but also in Matthew and Luke, and so you will, you will hear me referring to those other uh, passages as well. And so if something that, that we don't read about specifically uh, in Mark, if I, if I speak about that this morning, it, it's going to be in one of those other two Gospel. So I would just encourage you to go back later today and read those accounts for yourself. But before I read the passage from you this, for you this morning from Mark's Gospel, I want to point out that all three Gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all record the transfiguration of Jesus occurring just a matter of days after Jesus drops this truth on His disciples that we looked at last week. First of all, that He would have to suffer rejection and that he would also suffer the, the pain of the, the cruelty of the cross. And he tells his disciples that. And then you'll recall that, 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 that Peter rebuked Jesus and, and Jesus rebuked Peter back and said, you know, get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. And then he went on to instruct his disciples that if they wanted to truly be his followers, that they would have to follow him down that same path that Jesus was going to walk. They would have to follow him down the, the path of the cross. And so it's interesting to me that having told the disciples these things, which by, by definition are among the hard sayings that Jesus taught his disciples, the hard sayings of the New Testament, it's on the backside of that, Jesus leads Peter, James, and John, the inner three as they are sometimes referred to, up the mountain. And, and as he takes them up there, I believe he does this in order to, to allow them to see some things and to to hear some things that would serve as an encouragement to them, particularly in light of the, the very hard sayings that he had delivered to them just days before. Obviously, we're not told exactly why it was only Peter, James, and John. We don't know why the other nine didn't come. We, we really have no idea, but we do know this. We know that according to Luke's gospel, Jesus took them up there in order to pray with them. And, and, but I also believe that when Jesus took them there, as I said, that it was an opportunity for him to display some things to them, to show them some things. Really, the way I look at it is kind of like it, it, he took these three disciples on a field trip. He took them on a divine field trip that was divinely appointed that would be there for them to learn some very critical issues, to learn some things, to, to be able to see and to hear some things that would, would teach them some stuff that they really needed to have in order to help them continue to progress down the path of discipleship. You know, I remember taking field trips when I was young and in school, and, and inevitably the refrain from my teachers was this, you need to look, you need to listen, 
and you need to learn. And so I believe that's exactly what Jesus wanted his disciples to do, was to look, to listen, and to learn. And so with that as an introduction this morning, let's read the text from Mark's gospel. Mark chapter 9, verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord today. And Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. Now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves and he was transfigured before them. His clothes became shining, exceedingly white like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. And Elijah appeared to them with Moses and they were talking with Jesus. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. And let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, because he did not know what to say, for they were greatly afraid. And a cloud came and overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son. Hear him. And suddenly when they had looked around, they saw no one anymore, but only Jesus with themselves. Now, as they came down from the mountain, he commanded them that they should tell no one the things they had seen till the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept his word to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, saying, Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Then he answered and told them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and restores all things. And how is it written concerning the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has also come, and they did to him whatever they wished, as it is written of him. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together this day. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity that we have experienced in being able to be in worship with you this morning, to worship you in spirit and truth, to lift our voices in praise. Now I pray that you would help us, Father, as we study your word. Help us to hide it deep within our hearts and allow it to, to change us and transform us and to encourage us. Father, this I pray that you might receive glory and honor by all that we say and all that we do in Christ's name. Amen. There's much debate, quite frankly, with regard to verse 1 of our text. Um, you might notice that I even read it alongside the text from last week. And one of the reasons that I did that is because Verse 1 is sort of one of those verses that people don't really know exactly where it fits. Does it fit with the previous section? Does it fit with this section? Um, I'm going to let you chase out all the different parts of the debate that, that surround this verse, and there's plenty that's been written. I'm going to give you what I think. I, I believe after having contemplated this text and really read through it and studied it and, and really tried to consider why it was written there, I believe that it actually fits best uh, alongside what I've just read for you, that it fits from verses 2 on down through verse Thirteen, And the reason that I believe that is the case is because of the content of what Jesus says. He tells his disciples that are there, he says, look, there's some of you standing here right now. You're not going to taste death until you have experienced or until you have, have seen the kingdom of God present or having come with power. Now, there's a lot of different understandings. What is Jesus talking about there? I believe, contextually, he's referring to what he was about to show them on the mountaintop when he went there. I think that's the best way for us to understand what Jesus is saying there. And I really believe that it comes as a way of encouragement to the disciples. Because as I said, Jesus has just dropped some very difficult, 
hard saying, hard news upon them, that he himself would suffer rejection, that he himself would suffer the crucifixion on the cross. And he's also told them that if they wanted to be his followers, they too would have to take up their cross and follow him. That the only way that they would be able to save their life is by losing their life. And if anyone tried to save it of their own selves, they would lose it. He's told them some very difficult things. And so here, what we see is him saying, but listen, you're not going to, some of you standing here, you're not even going to pass away until you get to taste a little bit of that glory. And so really, I believe that that kind of sets up what Jesus intends to do for his disciples, particularly for, for Peter, James, and John. I've given you this outline this morning. As I mentioned, I believe that what he leads them up to on that mountaintop was sort of like a, a divine field trip. And, and, and that field trip is something that they were, they were told to look and to listen and then to learn from. And so that's, that's really the way that I've laid out your outline this morning. And uncharacteristically of me, I've not left you any blanks to fill in. I didn't leave you any spaces to just put one word answers. You may have to think a little extra this morning. I've actually left you a lot of white space so you can write down a lot of answers today because I want us to think about what did the disciples, what did the disciples see? In fact, that's the first point on your outline this morning. If we look along with the disciples at what they were able to see, we need to ask what, what did they see when Jesus took them up on that mountain? Well, the first thing that we note is that basically what Jesus tells us here in verse 2 or excuse me, what Mark tells us is that Jesus was transfigured before them. The word in the Greek is metamorpho. Now, that, that sounds big and 50 cents side, so let me just tell you. It's where we get our word, English word metamorphosis from, which means to change form. And so that's what transfigured means. It means to change form. And Jesus changed the manner in which he became visible to his disciples. He took on a physical form that was different from that which he had previously appeared to his disciples. Verse 3 gives us a description of how that change looked. He, Mark tells us that his clothes became shining exceedingly white, like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten. When you read that, it's almost as if Mark is grasping for a way to describe just, just how brilliantly white, how, how shining, how dazzling Jesus actually looked. It's like, I don't even know the words to describe, but it's whiter than anything I've ever seen. It's more brilliant than anything I've ever seen. But it wasn't just his clothes that changed. Notice, notice also that according to Luke's version that comes in Luke chapter 9, verse 29, Luke says that the appearance of his face was altered. And that's kind of an understatement, right? Because if we go on and we look at what Matthew writes, Matthew says in 17 verse 2 of his gospel that Jesus' face shone like the sun. Now, can you imagine such a sight? It's probably hard for us to get into our minds exactly what these disciples encountered with Jesus when he transfigured before them. They, they had to be awestruck by what they saw. It was completely, uh, it was something that happened that they were not expecting and, and I believe that this by far was the most stunning display of glory they had ever seen. Now, they had seen a lot of amazing things. They had been with Jesus when he'd raised some from the dead. They'd been with him when he spoke and the wind stopped blowing and the waves quit, quit rolling. He, they had seen him do a lot of things, but I believe this by far was the most amazing thing that they'd ever seen. In fact, Philip Graham Rockin puts it this way. He says, of all the things the apostles witnessed, none was more spectacular than their vision of the glorified Christ. He says... 
Peter, James, and John saw a blinding display of light as if they were caught in the high beams of heaven. Jesus radiated with divine incandescence, his deity shining through the veil of his humanity, and the disciples gazed into, their, into his face. When they did, they saw the radiant luminescence that revealed the glory of God's Son. Now, if you'll remember, just days before this event took place, Peter had confessed that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. Well, here on this mountaintop, Jesus sort of pulls back the human exterior to him and allows his disciples to see him in that glory as the Son of God. You see, the metamorphosis that Jesus underwent was not something that changed who he was. He did not change. Rather, it was only the form in which he appeared to his disciples that changed. And momentarily, they were given a glimpse of just how glorious Jesus truly was. We get an idea of, of how glorious it was from when Jesus prays this high priestly prayer. John chapter 17, he's praying there. And in verse 5, he prays this. He says, O oh, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory that I had with you before the world was. See, Jesus has always been the full representation of the glory of God. He's always existed in eternal light. He'll always exist that way. If you'll recall, when John writes his revelation, in Revelation 21, we find there that when the holy city, the new Jerusalem, is, is there and everyone is there, there will be no sun there, nor need of the moon, John writes. Why? Well, because the glory of the Lord will illuminate it. And the Lamb will be its light, John writes. So that's the first thing that the disciples see. They see Christ in all of His radiant glory. But the second thing that the disciples saw is told to us in verse 4. Mark says that no sooner did the disciples get a vision of Jesus, this vision that He provided for them, than the four of them are joined by two more characters. They're joined by two really Old Testament greats. Elijah shows up and then Moses up on this mountaintop. And they were talking with Jesus, Mark says. Now, my inquiring mind is always wanting to know, how did they know it was Elijah and Moses? I mean, did they come and introduce themselves to the disciples and say, hello, I'm Elijah, and hello, I'm, I'm Moses. You may have heard of me. I don't know if that's what I... Did Jesus, did Jesus announce who they were? Did they have... I don't know. Did they have name tags? Nothing, nothing is written that gives us that... In, that, that the only thing that we're written, that's written about, is what Luke tells us. Luke gives us one added little tidbit of information and says that they appeared in the glory with them. Now, I don't believe that that means that they appeared with the same glory that Jesus had, because they were not God. Nevertheless, I believe their physical bodies that they, they showed themselves therein was different from that of the disciples. It was different in such a way that, that they recognized something different about them. In other words, their physical appearance, while it wasn't like Christ's, was different from that of a normal human being as we might expect. That's the second thing that I think we need to note that they saw. Then thirdly, I want you to note one other thing that was seen by the disciples on that mountaintop. And we read about it down in verse 7. Verse 7 says that a cloud came and overshadowed them. And I don't believe that this was just one of those fluffy white clouds that goes by and we see it and we say, oh, isn't that beautiful? 
It was a nice white fluffy cloud. I don't believe that's what it was at all. I believe actually it was, it was a different kind of cloud, a cloud that contained the glory of God because as we see, the, the voice of God comes down from that cloud and speaks to them. I believe the cloud that rested there would be what we would call the Shekinah glory of God. It was, it was that which we are, are privy to in the Old Testament, particularly in the book of Exodus. If you recall in Exodus, there was that same cloud that, that, that rested on top of Mount Sinai and it was from that cloud that God spoke to Moses and, and communed with him. You'll also see about that cloud in 1 Kings chapter 8 when the temple was filled with the glory of God. It was the cloud. It was the Shekinah glory of God that rested there. And I believe that was the cloud that day on that mountaintop that rested there and the disciples were able to behold it. And, and certainly they recognized that because it says that they fell to the ground in fear. So if I may summarize what we learned from Mark and from really from Matthew and Luke about this field trip to the mountaintop that, that Peter, James, and John went on with Jesus. And they were allowed to look, and they were allowed to see some amazing and some spectacular things that were also frightening. And they were given a brief and unveiled vision of Jesus the Christ and all of His brilliance and all of His glory. And they were also able to see these two Old Testament saints, Elijah and Moses, who played these major roles in the Old Testament history. And then finally, they were overshadowed by this cloud, the Shekinah glory of God that encompassed them. So those were the things that the disciples saw. So the next question that we need to consider is, is the listen. And we ask the question, what did the disciples hear? That's the second point on your outline this morning. What did the disciples hear? Mark doesn't tell us, but, but Luke says that they went up on the, the, the mountain to pray. We know that it was as Jesus was praying that he was transfigured with them, but we're not told what he was praying about. I, I, I believe the disciples probably heard him praying, and they probably knew what he was praying about, but it's not specifically told to us there. But I believe we have an indication of perhaps what he was praying about with the showing up of Elijah and with Moses. And then, of course, as we just saw, Mark, Luke actually tells us in, in chapter 9, verse 31, that the three of them was, were speaking together about the departure of Jesus, which would be accomplished at Jerusalem. The departure, which would be accomplished at Jerusalem. Interesting, that word or departure there in the Greek is the word exodus. And, and, and exodus really was a euphemism a way to say that somebody was departing this life for the next life. Somebody was leaving the, life, the, the, the world of the living for the world of the dead. That's how it sometimes was used. And it was how it was being used here. But what I find interesting is that that was the word that was used to describe what was going to happen with Jesus. The, his exodus, which would be accomplished in Jerusalem. When I, if I say the word exodus to you, then many times what, what first comes to mind is the thought of, of, of blood being sprinkled on the doorpost and the lentils of Israelite homes as they were preparing for their exodus. Well, what often comes to our minds is the role of Moses who would then lead those children who had been passed over by the death angel because of that blood, that they would be led out of the, the, the wicked Pharaoh's dominion and they would be brought into the promised land by Moses. When I speak of Exodus, most of the time that is what we think about. And what's interesting here is that on that mountaintop, Jesus is speaking face to face with Moses, the first one 
who would have led his children out of Egyptian bondage, but they were talking about a future exodus in which Jesus would become the Paschal Lamb whose blood would make it possible so that his people could be led out of a greater bondage, a bondage to sin, a bondage to Satan and the prince of darkness. And his blood would be the way by which that exodus would take place. I just I think it's so interesting that that's the discussion. And that the disciples, as they were on that mountaintop that day, were able to, to hear that conversation as it was taking place. Then we also note, though, back here in Mark's Gospel in chapter 9, verse 7, there's something else that the disciples hear. When that cloud came and surrounded them, out of the cloud they heard these words, This is my beloved Son. Hear Him. Now, Many have noted that this was probably God's, the Father's way of just telling Peter to shh. Because if you remember, Peter's always going, Lord, it's good that we're here. You know what? I think this is the best place in the world that we could possibly be. We are just, we are right here on the top of the mountain with you. I think we need to build, we need to build some tabernacles. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. What was Peter talking about? Well, the truth is, I don't even know if Peter knew exactly what he was talking about. Mark says that he didn't know what to say because they were greatly afraid in light of the fact that they had come into this place and seen these things for which they were completely unprepared. Luke goes on to state plainly that Peter didn't know what he was talking about. It was as if, though, what he saw just amazed him and, and blew him away, and he just began talking and talking, and God out of the cloud says... Peter, this is my beloved son. Hear him. In other words, shh. Listen to what he has to say. Um, in light of that, I think that it's important that we think about what God says here and how he, he kind of closes Peter down. In other words, what he's saying is when Jesus speaks and what Jesus says is important for you guys to listen to. And I think if it was important for those disciples to listen to what Jesus says, it's important for you and I to listen to it too. Listen, when, when, when the Lord makes this command that we are to hear Jesus, He's not just saying we need to, to hear the tones coming out of His mouth, that we just ought to recognize the words that are being said. He's saying we need to take those words and we need to allow them to go deep into our hearts. We need to apply the truth of what they are said. That's why the Bible says Jesus always said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. In other words, what I'm saying to you needs to drop from the 18 inches of your ears down into the, to the heart region, the soul of you, so that you understand that the things that I'm going to say to you are there so that it can conform you and make you into the image of the man, woman, boy, and girl that God desires you to be. And so it's important that we recognize that when God speaks to the disciples out of this, this, this cloud, He's not only revealing who Jesus is, He's telling them the importance of what it means to hear and to understand and to grasp what it is that Jesus has revealed about himself to them and to us. Now, note just as quickly as God says this, verse 8, the scene changes because suddenly when they had looked around, they saw no one anymore, but only Jesus with themselves. Peter had said it was good to be there on the mountaintop with the transfigured Jesus, listening to him talk with the Old Testament saints. But now the field trip was over. All the sights and all the sounds were gone away, and they were just back to normal everyday activity just with Jesus. 
on the mountaintop. And they descended down the mountain and, and Jesus told them that they were not to say anything about what they'd seen and heard until after he had risen from the dead. Just as an aside, how hard do you think that would have been? That is a burden placed upon them that I'm not sure I would have wanted placed upon me. But nevertheless, I, it, the Bible says that they did that exact thing. But he said, you can tell about it after I have risen from the dead. Now that created some questions in their minds. They weren't sure what he was talking about. Yet again, this resurrection thing. But even more so, they decided to ask him about Elijah. And they said, listen, Lord, the, the Bible says, the prophet Malachi says that, that before the Messiah comes, Elijah will come. But wait a minute, you're already here and you're the Messiah and we just saw Elijah. So can you help us out with that? And, and I'm not going to get into all the, the details of it. If you go back and read Matthew, you'll come to the, the full understanding of it that they recognize from what Jesus' words were is that the Elijah that, that Malachi referred to was really John the Baptist, the one who would come in the same power of Elijah, the one who preceded Jesus, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, the one who would come in that same Elijah-like power. That was John the Baptist. And what, what Jesus says there says, I'm telling you, they did to him whatever they wished and they will so with me. And, and so we know that by this point that John the Baptist had already been beheaded and it was strictly a, a, a recognition that he, Jesus too would suffer at the hands of his own people. So these are the things that the disciples heard. They've been able to witness and see some amazing things and they heard some amazing things. And so they looked around and they listened and then we come to the last point this morning and that is what did they learn? What did they learn? What did the disciples come to know? And let me just go ahead and put this on. That's, that's a, a bit deceiving for me to ask that question. What did the disciples learn? Because the Bible doesn't give us specifics of what they learned. Nevertheless, I think based upon what we have witnessed ourselves and the things that we've heard said, there's some necessary inferences that we should learn, and I think they did as well. And that's what I want us to, to consider this morning. The first thing that I believe that this text teaches us is that the transfiguration of Jesus confirms what Peter had affirmed back in chapter 8, verse 29, that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. The simple fact that He displayed for them the radiance of His glory that has been His throughout all eternity, coupled with the fact that God the Father had announced, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased, hear Him, those things right there would have confirmed that Jesus truly was the Messiah. So that's the first thing we need to learn. Along those same lines, the second thing that we need to learn is, is that the popular opinion about Jesus, as we read back in chapter 8, was that he was John the Baptist or Elijah come back to life or some other prophet. Well, the fact that he is standing on that mountaintop and that he's having a conversation with Elijah and with Moses tells us that Jesus was not just some prophet. He was the Son of God. And he was the one whom God has sent to be the Messiah who would take away the sins of the world. Along those same lines, what we also know is that because Moses represented the law, and because Elijah would have represented the prophets, then when he is stand, they are standing there talking to Jesus, Jesus then is the culmination of all that the Old Testament had promised that would take place. He is the fulfillment of all the law and the prophets. And the reason we know that is because those two guys, those two prophets themselves are standing there talking to Jesus. And they're talking about the exodus that he would then lead. Thirdly, based upon the conversation that Luke records for us is taking place, between Moses and Elijah, what we also know is that the crown and the cross 
a part of one consolidated plan. It was never God's intention for there not to be a cross associated with the kingdom. It was always God's plan that Jesus would come and that he would die on a cross in order to save and redeem his people from their sins. The Exodus would accomplish that. As a matter of fact, it would not be completely accomplished until he had descended down from this Mount of Transfiguration and climbed up a hill called Golgotha and crucified on that hill. In fact, one writer has written it this way. He says, on Golgotha's hill, instead of glory, all we see is suffering and shame. Instead of light, there will be only darkness. Instead of a voice from heaven speaking words of fatherly affirmation and affection and acceptance, there will only be the dread silence and wretched agony of God forsaken by God. Instead of life, there will be only death. And the writer goes on to say this, what a paradox. Glory, then the cross. But there's a fourth thing that I think we ought to learn from this. And that is that that the presence of both Moses and Elijah on that mountaintop, both of whom had been considered dead and gone for thousands of years. By this point, Moses Moses had been been gone from the scene for 1,500 years and Elijah for 8,900, 900 to 1,000 years by this point. And they were considered to be gone, dead. And yet their very presence on that mountaintop tells us that there is life after death. It tells us that God has the power to raise that which has died to bring it life again. Their sheer presence there tells us that there is a realm beyond the one that you and I see and the one in which you and I live and the one in which you and I think that all there is. No, there's something greater out there. There's a greater reality to that. And God has the power to deliver us into that glorious kingdom that he has been describing to us. There is life after death. And that point leads to the fifth truth that I believe this passage reveals to us, and that is the fact that that Jesus being revealed in all of his glory from eternity past, present, and future tells us that there's a realm that, that is out there that is before us, it is concurrent with us, and it goes beyond us. And Jesus had contact with all of it at the same time. Our minds can't get wrapped around that. We think very linearly that one day follows the next and one day follows the next and it does but with God everything is present and he is present here David Gooding writes this he says the effect of the transfiguration was to convince the disciples beyond any shadow of a doubt of the real existence of the other world the eternal kingdom our world is not the only one he writes there is another not only that but he goes on to state this he says that other world is not just future to our world, but concurrent with it, though also before it and beyond it. The sixth thing that I think we need to learn from what this text tells us, though, concerns what the Father said out of the cloud. Because it was there that he says, this is my beloved Son. Hear him. Now, we've already talked about this may have been God's way of shutting Peter up. Jesus himself shut Peter up and says, don't write and don't talk about this until after I've been raised from the dead. What I find interesting, though, is that eventually they did talk about it. Otherwise, we'd have no record of it. We'd have no way of knowing what took place if those three had not shared it with the other disciples. But what I also find interesting is that even though Peter and John wrote letters in the New Testament, 
John went on to write his own gospel. He went on to write the Revelation as well as the 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Nowhere in his writing does he specifically refer to the transfiguration. Peter only refers to it tangentially. He only talks about it in one small place. 2nd Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 16, Peter writes this. He says, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. That was the baptism. Then Peter writes, And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And then immediately following that, Peter says this, And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well, to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Did you get what Peter just said right there? If Peter were going to come here and stand before you today to encourage you, do you know what he would not do? He would not point you back to his mountaintop experience with Jesus where he showed his glory to you, to him. No, what he would say is you have a more sure word. You have the prophetic word confirmed because you have the full understanding of the scriptures which have been given to you. He goes on to say that there's nothing been given to us that was of man's own thinking, but that it was the Holy Spirit of God moving men along to write what they did. Understand this. The encouragement that Peter would give to us to continue to follow the Lord Jesus Christ and to follow him down the path of discipleship that may be very difficult and very, may be very tough comes from the fact that we have the completed text of God's Word where he has spoken to us through his Son and through the words of those that the Holy Spirit has inspired. So these are the things that I believe that the Lord Jesus wanted his disciples and he wanted us to learn as a result of this field trip to the mountaintop. And again, the reason I believe it was so important is because the horrors of the cross awaited Jesus. And it wasn't just the horrors of the cross for him. It was the horrors of becoming one of his disciples, traveling a road that required them to take up their cross daily and to follow Jesus. And friends, as we discussed last week, that same road is the road in front of us same path is the same one that we must take and therefore this field trip was meant to encourage them and to encourage us they were to take solace in the fact that Jesus truly was the Christ and is the Christ the son of the living God they were to be comforted by the fact that he came to die in the place of sinners that they might live they were to rejoice in the fact that that death would not end in death but that there would be a resurrection there would be life after death the great reality that exists beyond what can be seen in this life. And though you and I might say we would give our right arm to have been on that mountaintop and to have seen the things that Peter, James, and John saw, Peter would say to us that we have the very testimony, we have the very Word of God in our hands, and so we are not deficient in any way. He has given to us everything that we need, and it is right here in these holy words. And so this vision was there to encourage them. It was there to enable them to continue to take up their cross and follow Jesus. And that then leads me then to my sermon in a sentence this morning. And it's a doozy. So hang on.
Jesus encourages and enables his people to follow him on the cross-bearing path of self-denial by granting a glimpse of the glory that Christ and his people will have in the coming kingdom and by speaking to us through his word, which tells us of his plan to redeem his people through the cross and the empty tomb. For those of you who may not know Jesus, I want you to know that this text testifies that he is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the one who came to die in your place on the cross. That you might be free from the penalty and from the power of sin. And the message then requires you to trust in him. Will you? Have you? If you have, then for the believer, this text is there for your encouragement. I don't know what you face. I don't know the difficulties that you are up against in your life. I don't know that what you are you're facing with family members or friends or colleagues or whatever the case may be for traveling the road that God has laid out in front of you. This I do know, though, the same truths that were there to enable and to encourage those disciples have been given to you and to I as well. The disciples were to learn, so are we, and we are to continue to follow him down that road of discipleship because, brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. And it's for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning.